0: this is superlative a podcast about watches the people behind them and the worlds that inspire them spending time with the blog 2 watch community and the stories we discover let's get started Hey, everyone. Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Patrick Long. Patrick is a champion race car driver, uh, the founder of a really exciting uh, car sort of appreciation event that goes on that we'll talk about, um, and an overall cool guy that I got to spend uh, some good time with. Patrick, hello. What's going on, man? Thanks for having me. Yeah. So uh, not too long ago, you and I spent many hours in a car together. You were, of course, operating the car. So you're sort of half paying attention. And I was also trying to give <laughs> directions, which was fun. But this was on the, the California Mille, which was this, this cool event that uh, you were participating in. Um, and then I learned that we actually, you know, I think we're the same age. We also grew up not too far from one
1: another, right? Yeah, exactly. I grew up uh, in the Agora Hills, uh, Thousand Oaks area. So both... Uh SoCal. Um, but I, I, I want to back up and say that, yeah, jumping into the California melee and um, being in a 1957-356 for eight hours together, that's almost like a reality show, a baptism by fire of of meeting someone and uh, being tested by navigation and wild roads and hot weather, cold weather. That was, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, that was exciting. So how often do you get to do something like that? I mean, there's
0: there's a few people out there that will hear 1957 Porsche 356 and know that that's a special vehicle. Other people will be like, I don't know what that means. How often do you get to do stuff like that?
1: Well, I never had done a multi-day road rally. The California Mille is sort of um, spun off of the Mille Mille um, of the, in, in Italy. That's a very historic um, road rally. And navigation and time, um, exact time, instead of just outright speed, is a big part of the rally. So um, it was fun to talk watches and, and, you know, talk about the history of the event. But my background is closed-course endurance sports car racing. Uh, essentially, a bunch of, of brands, luxury brands of sports car makers um, entering their own race um, race car into uh, one of the biggest stages uh, in the world, the 24 hour of Le Mans and going twice around the clock. So overall uh, activity of driving cars is, is second nature to me. But the experience of a road rally, uh, we were both rookies and uh, I had a good time. It's it's more fun and, and more challenging than I ever expected.
0: Yeah, it was it was super cool. And I think that what's, you know, while you're talking about that, I'm appreciating that the world of automotive appreciation is on such a larger level than wristwatches. There's such a parallel, but all the different ways of being into cars is so much more than all the ways of being into watches. With watches, you know, you sort of wear them and you can appreciate them from a few angles. But you can be just a sort of consumer enthusiast. You can be a race car driver in the world of racing, and there's just a bazillion different things. How how big has it been for you to be a a, a driving hero, going around the world? It's to sort of own special kind of celebrity, right? Like, what's that been, been like for you over the last, I don't know, couple decades?
1: Yeah, it's been interesting, first of all, to um, be a professional racing driver and, and make my living um, as an extension of the Porsche brand, um, one of between five and 20 drivers on the global roster. And um, I started in 2003 with uh, a dream opportunity. I was with uh, a single seater program in, in Formula Cars living in Europe and got the opportunity to test for Porsche. And thought to myself, man, if I could be a professional racing driver for even one weekend, that would be a dream come true. And so to be with Porsche for almost two decades and be their only North American team member, I got to see so much of the world. I got to compete in amazing races and also to have a great exposure to um, the love for watches, not only um, partnerships with people like Chopar and Porsche, but also just Fans and collectors alike, car collectors and racing fans, and their love uh, for watches. And I think that when people ask me what is it about Porsche that's so captivating to you, I collect my own uh, vintage Porsches. Uh, it's it's really for me. It's a cross sector of engineering and design. And I think that when you look at watches they're an extension of those two things. And really, it's your personal uh, brand. It's, it's you identifying with what you uh, want to project out uh, from an identity standpoint. I think cars and watches are, are both sort of that symbol. So yeah, I found a lot of conversations cross-pollinating between the two. So what's the deal with this
0: sort of old European luxury, whether it's cars or watches? Being so snooty to Americans. I mean, you've seen this so many times. It's like this hesitancy to like bring us into the fold. You know, you were talking about being a test driver for Porsche. I i, I think you were the only American ever to do that. Like, what's up with the distrust of
1: Americans? No, I mean, Porsche's had a pretty, you know pretty I mean. strong history with, with Americans. But I know what you're talking about, you know, living— Abroad, I left school at 16 to live and race in Italy in go-karting. Um, and instantly I realized it was actually, ironically, it was during the whole Clinton-Lewinsky scandals. And I found myself thrust into the middle of a political uh, charged conversation where I would be, you know, at a at a table. Someone invited me to their house because I'm living in a small apartment, and they would invite me to my, their house for dinner. And the grandma would be at the other end of the table in an Italian, just blasting me like, "What the hell's wrong with your president? He's 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 doing all these things, you know." So, and then later on, uh, six years later, I remember living in Germany when the war was really kicking off post 9 11, and um, it's it just always uh, very charged politically. So I. I realize that the way the world sees us um, is is very much through the media, and depending on what media they're watching, uh, we get pretty bad rap, uh, especially when it comes to politics and government. But avoiding that conversation for today because I hate talking <laughs> politics. Um, I think Americans are different, and, and culturally, um, sometimes we're read a little bit wrong off the the initial uh, conversation when you meet that person at the bar and in, in the hotel of an international airport, but. Through and through, my relationships I would say are fifty fifty uh, international versus um, home and Americans. And I, I think after you get past that initial culture clash, uh, Americans are are great fellows and and great um, companions and and friends. And it, so it's been it's been interesting. But yeah, you definitely have to break through that initial uh, ice.
0: I think what's important for people to recognize is the thing that connects us to the Europeans in the first place are these shared passions for automotive or watches or both or whatever. So you you, you initially encounter uh, these different cultures because of the shared passion, and there's no nothing lost in translation there. You like things for the exact same reasons. Of course, there's little differences, but like car or watch appreciation is car or watch appreciation no matter where you are in the world. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you get along in every other respect. So after you talk about that shared passion, you're at that dinner table, and you have to bring up pretty much everything else you realize like it's like, uh oh, culture shock, I gotta figure out what to do.
1: Yeah, but I, I love um I'm I'm not personally um, a very versed or or educated watch collector, but I love that I can talk cars and collecting vintage cars with watch aficionados. And that again breaks down um the culture or or, or the differences and you have that common bond and, and that common love. So I always think, you know, when I look at Porsche and uh, Lufka Cult, which is a, a a global brand that I bring people together from all over the world to connect first on cars, but really, when you get past it, as you said, the conversation evolves and it really is a, a much broader conversation. So I love the connector, the the conduit of of these. Hobbies or these passions of of watches cars uh boats, wine, whatever you want to call it uh it, it, it's a great way to meet new people
0: yeah i mean it's it's basically how to make friends as an adult um i want to i want to <laughs> like bring up something that I remember we talked about because I think it's such an interesting idea, and that was with winning a Rolex now there's a lot of watches out there that are like prizes for this and that, and I don't know that anybody really cares, but the Rolex is different, and what I found that was interesting is that People who can afford Rolexes are still so freaking excited about winning one. Um, and this is this isn't just driving; this is like sailing and some other things. But talk about the experience of being a professional driver, but also being really motivated by wi- winning that Rolex. Like explain
1: that. Yeah, I think the race is so uh, historically tied to the Rolex Daytona. Um, of course, the the namesake of the watch is the race and it's been so many decades of the same general uh, award for the winners of the race and I think it's again back to that symbolism um, and and that achievement you can't wear a trophy per se Uh, those are usually at home and and for me not even in in visual eye of of for a guest but um, when you do wear a watch that you've been awarded uh, it's it's a great way uh, to, to kick in conversation and um, it's a great reminder of being in the trenches for 24 hours. I mean, these races are not, especially the Daytona 24. It's not an easy uh, task. You are low on sleep, low on fluids, You're completely exhausted and you have to push through for hours and hours and hours, um, similar in a marathon mindset. And you know, when you when you look at that watch and you hold that watch, for me, it's been even a decade, more than a decade, uh, since I won my uh, Rolex Daytona. Uh, it's such a, a great keepsake. And and I know a lot of my friends that have been victorious multiple times in the race, they they always gift um, their second one to, to their father. And I just recently retired, so I don't think I'll be doing that race anymore. But um, again, great, great piece to hand down generation to generation, as I'm sure you've talked about on this show. Do drivers make comebacks like they do in golf? Yes, but um, few and far between. I think, you know, motorsport is so much uh, a lifestyle, and I see most drivers continue in some facet of the sport, and that already encompasses so much focus and intensity that it really doesn't lend uh, the allowance to go back and get into the car, especially the physicalities of it. So much of uh, our body fitness of car racing is all about being actually in the car. It's, it's really hard to simulate it in the gym. And it might not seem to the naked eye as a, a physical sport or to a listener who's not uh, familiar with uh, professional motorsport, but um, the intensity of the bumps, the shakes, uh, very stiff suspension, very high speed, lots of G-forces, it pulls on little tiny muscles that you don't even know you have until you're sort of an hour in and your fingers are cramped up or your lower back is spasming. And so long story short, it's tough to to do a comeback uh, in motorsport, but a a few have done it, especially when they wake up and realize – what have I done? I'm I'm bored out of my mind and my wife <laughs> doesn't want to see me or my husband doesn't want to see me. So, um, so far, I haven't had that um, nod from my wife, but it's still only been a few months. And because it it is an
0: incredibly physical thing. Like, like you said, uh, people don't recognize the shakes and the jolts and the battering that your body gets through there. Like, uh, you know, people, like, they look at it like, oh, the, those drivers are cradled up. They must be so comfy in there. And it's like, no, it's like being an astronaut, basically.
1: Yeah, I mean, how did you feel after eight eight hours in that car i mean there's no creature comforts there's no <laughs> there's no air conditioning and we're kind of sliding around the roads i mean we it's, had it's a tiring seats. day we had the wrong seats you're right you're right but it, but you i bet you were tired i was tired when we got to the hotel that night
0: yeah i mean it's an exhaust it is definitely exhausting it's very active driving you know it's like the opposite of driving you know along the five freeway in like a high-end lexus which is just sort of floating <laughs> along there it's it's you know, you're, of course it's, you know, it's a manual transmission. So you're constantly on top of that all the time, which isn't that big of a deal, but it's, it it means you can't just, you know, hang out. Um, that engine needs to be handled correctly. It's such a simple engine, but like, you know, it could, it just, you need to keep the revs up and things like that. Um, it's, it's exhausting and suspension and things like that. And, and, and you're a good driver. I'm sure other people were sliding around and who knows what, what experience they could be. The the race cars, I actually was always curious. Assuming you were driving it more casually, are they comfortable or are they just as crazy and abusive on the body uh, when you're just driving for
1: leisure as you are in a race? Well, we try to immobilize the body um, by pouring a, a mold um, of the body in the seat. And then you have a five, six-part point harness that is tied as tight as you can where you can still breathe. Um, so you're pretty well immobilized from your hips to your chest. And then, you know, your neck is sort of, um, on a leash, if you will, it's, it's, it's got a Hans device on it, a, a neck restraint, um, that stops the neck from traveling too far in an incident. But yeah, it's pretty claustrophobic, um, but comfortable is relative, but I would say it's, it's decent. Um, the seats of course wrap around you, uh, for support. I mean, remember it's, it's. You know two to three and a half g's of lateral and and linear load and a lot of high frequency vertical bumps so like a a space simulator or something of that nature or or a fighter jet um there's there's enough g's that it can make your eyeballs hurt in a prototype like a an lmp prototype where you've got you know formula one type performance and basically downforce creates grip, aerodynamic grip, and you're stuck to the road. So um, I've driven some cars where the limit of going faster through the corner is really down to the physicality. So to put it in perspective for someone who's um, doing cardio at the gym, you know, we run about 160 to 170 beats per minute in the race car. And then you've got four layers of clothes on and you're doing it for sometimes two or three hours at a time. So it gets pretty hot in the car, uh, pretty physical. And then a lot of mental stress. So, um, yeah, you learn how to kind of temper all of that and conserve energy, put a lot of science into fluids, hydration, and, and getting your nutrition back because a lot of times you'll run for two or three hours stint and then you'll have an hour off, before you have to get back in and do it all again. So you really have to replenish uh, and hopefully you don't hit any of your reserve sort of red, red zones because that makes for a very long day in the race car. So you're talking
0: about this notion. I think it's very interesting that your success is sometimes determined by how much you can push your body. And those people who can act, you know, responsibly while pushing their body very hard are are those that can take those bigger risks, go a little bit faster. And that's that's actually where a lot of the success comes from.
1: I think so, especially in this day and age where the cars have evolved so much and the performance is so extreme. Uh, mentally, is, is every bit as important, if not more, that you have to be millimeter perfect and be able to push yourself to the very limit, push the car and the tire to the very limit and do that over and over again. Um, Some of the best drivers will run, you know, two, three minute lap times within a tenth of a second for a straight stint of an hour, hour and a half. Um, It's pretty amazing for people who've been watching uh, Drive to Survive on Netflix. Uh, I think they've talked about it a lot, just how disciplined mentally and how perfect and acute the drivers have to be. And a lot of that comes from just millions of millions of miles uh, driving from a a small child in, in karting. Um, all the way through. I mean, I'm 40 years old. I started racing at eight. It's all I've really ever focused on in life. And so um, there, there's that sort of unfair advantage. But yeah, I would say the the mental performance, sports psychology, those are things you'll hear racing drivers talk about just as much as the physical side. So
0: when you win and you get that Rolex watch, what's that ceremony like? I've always wondered, like, do they just sort of casually hand it off to you? Is it shipped to you later? Do they do a whole to-do about it? Like, you know, what's part of that ritual
1: like? No, you, you know that those watches are on the grounds and they're up for grabs. And we saw a race at the end of this year, uh, that was just unbelievable two drivers and it was going for broke. Ironically, they were both Porsche factory drivers in Porsches and we were all chewing our fingers off, uh, hoping that there wasn't going to be an incident cause there was a Ferrari in third, but, no. I mean, that was in the driver's mind. At that point, it was all about uh, that ceremony, the prize giving at the end, which is at the podium, you roll the car in, uh, you get out of the car, you kind of connect with your teammates that you've shared the car with for uh, the last 24 hours. And then they walk up on stage uh, with those four green boxes that, that everybody's been was fighting, right away. fighting for. Yeah, it's right. It's right then and there. And, and uh, it's pretty, pretty amazing. What what else do you get? I know
0: like people that win Oscars and things like that. They get these bit gift bags and all this. What are some of the other like fringe benefits of being a winner? Like what do you get on the spot? What comes a little later on? Because I mean, when you're when you're a champion, like brands just throw stuff at you. Yeah, it
1: depends. I mean, obviously that's evolved a bit, um, you know, over over the years with influencers, etc. But the race itself um, doesn't hand out much other than uh, a trophy. Um, there's not a lot of prize money in sports car racing. Usually, the team uh, and/or your employer, if you're a, a manufacturer, uh, hired driver. Uh, there's a there's a good little win bonus there um, in our contract. So that's probably the second thought. But again, you know the the finances are kind of second to the bragging rights of going to dinner that night and seeing all your uh, rivals and colleagues and them just asking, you know, "Let me check that watch out." I, I don't think a driver's gone to dinner. Do they Sunday want to see night. the watch.
0: They don't want to hear about your win. They don't care. They're just like, show me the watch.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's been different. Um, <laughs> there's been different versions of the watch. Uh, they don't always give out the same Daytona. And so for that, there's, there's a little bit of curiosity there, but um, no, all in all, it's, it's great. I mean, there's other brands as well. Uh, obviously, Chopar, uh, who, who took care of us, they do, they do a lot um of active engagement and involvement. Um, there's other races around the world um with other watch manufacturers as well. I mean, the Milamile, uh, I believe every competitor, the Milamile, um, has the chance at, at the official Chopar watch. So it's um it's a great extension. Like now that I've sort of stepped out of full-time racing and I think about, you know, when all the dust settles and no one really uh Cares too much about your on-track performance anymore. It's you kind of sitting in your your bedroom and, and looking back at an amazing time. And I think that those symbols of um, reminders of those days and and the relief that it's over, you know, the relief that, hey, I finally got this victory. Um, and also just seeing, seeing the clock running. Uh, it's a huge part of the me- mentality when you're in a 24-hour race is, is how much do you count the race down? I mean, let's be frank. Eight hours in, the fun and the novelty has worn off. So you're you're looking at that clock pretty constantly, just hoping to get to halfway and, and at least get over the hump. You know, the the, the sun sets, you go to work all night, uh, race through the night, then the sun starts coming up. Once the sun's starts coming up, you you know um, you're getting ready for that final sprint, and and you're getting close to home. So um, yeah, it's it's you, very you gotta explain- symbolic.
0: A little bit more how this. Not everyone, especially in the U.S., still knows how Le Mans works. So it's 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 an endurance race, as you said. It goes on for 24 hours, but you don't drive 24 hours straight. You you take breaks. Explain the schedule and how many hours
1: straight you're driving for, and and, and all that. Yeah, sure. The kind of famous, iconic 24 hour races around the world. Um, Daytona here in the states, obviously in Florida. Um, Le Mans, which is west of Paris, sort of a working class city that's been uh, Le Mans is the oldest race in the world. If I'm not mistaken, it's a, it's a big, big, uh, event nationally geographic rated Le Mans, uh, the best sporting event in the world. Um, you know, 250,000 people, uh, in, in one space you're racing. Um, I believe it's a almost an eight mile lap. Um, the purists are going to correct me on my, my length of Le Mans. I should know that. But, um, <laughs> And yeah, you start the race on Saturday, uh, somewhere in the three o'clock hour after a warm-up early in the morning and a lot of pre-race ceremonies. I mean, this is the Super Bowl for uh, international sports car racing, and there's a lot of buildup to the start of the race. And then, yeah, the the guy standing on the track and out of tradition waves the French flag and 60 cars go racing into turn one, and that's it. The race runs Twice around the clock. So the next day at three o'clock, that same guy standing on the straightaway uh, waving the checkered flag. And there's a couple different classes racing. Um, so there's there's class and overall racing together. Um, sort of like again back to running a marathon. There's there's an overall winner and then there's class winners and. At Lamont's three drivers, you can't have more, you can't have less. But of course, if you lose a driver to fatigue or illness, you can continue on. Um, there's a rule that says you can't do more than four hours in a six-hour period. So that's about the most I've ever driven in a six-hour block of the race is four hours. Um, and that's a, that's a tough one. But um, yeah, you rotate through. Basically, if everything goes to plan, when the car runs out of fuel, which is roughly around an hour, uh, you head for the pits, jump out of the car. Uh, if it's your time to rotate, and then uh, you, the next driver jumps in. Um, so you share the car and uh, it's, a, it's a relay race, basically in the simplest form.
0: What do you do for that time that you're driving? Obviously, you're driving, you have a, enormous amount of things to pay attention to, but like are there mental tricks you use to sort of I don't know, stay alert, keep attention. I mean, I
1: imagine like I, my mind would just start wandering constantly yeah I mean there's really no problem staying awake even even when you do get pulled out of um, a deep sleep at three in the morning and and you're told you have fifteen minutes to be dressed and in the pit lane um, and you sort of just come out of a, it was a like deep boot sleep boot camp yeah <laughs> i mean it's 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 the it was the hardest part looking back was going from deep sleep and being pretty fatigued and you know again it's you' probably had a a 15, 16 hour day. And then you just get about 45 minutes of, of some good sleep. And then something happens, you get a knock on the door, you're in a little cabin, uh, sort of a a small camper and just get that word, get your stuff on, uh, and, and let's go. So there's a driver coordinator that's outside, jump on the golf cart, get buzzed up. And all of a sudden it's just super loud, really bright lights, um, flash bulbs, you name it. Um, the, the crew guys are all there. You've got roughly five, six, seven guys, um, on your car. They've been awake the whole time. They, they doze off in between when you're out on track, but they're all there fully kitted car comes in, jumps out, uh, driver jumps out and you're in. And within 15 minutes, you're going 200 miles an hour in the pitch black. So, um, definitely, uh, when I look back, those are the days that you earned your, your keep, you earned your salary. Um, and yeah, it's, it's all about that mental, um, focus, to go out and hit your marks. And it's just like a switch. You have to be millimeter perfect. And what you're thinking about to your question is the next corner coming up. You really don't allow your mind to shift into internal dialogue. You're not really in a conscious uh, thought process. You're really just reminding yourself to process what's coming right at you. So similar to being in the really heavy fog or really heavy rain, and you're driving down the freeway, And you can barely see, and things are happening fast. All you're really doing is just wide-eyed staring out the front of the windshield, and you're just ready for anything to happen. And that's really maximum level of alertness for hours and
0: hours. That must be so fatiguing.
1: Yep, that's it right there. That's kind of it in a nutshell. You're just you're
0: wide open. Another question here, kind of related to this. I just this is like the kid in me. Growing up, you know, you'd see this uh, this cockpit really of these cars. And I always remember the steering wheel had like a bazillion buttons on it. And there's like all these different gauges and things. And I recognize that driving one of these cars, uh, is so much more than driving sort of a normal, you know, you know, <laughs> citizens, uh, uh, passenger vehicle, like other than, you know, accelerating and braking and shifting. Like, what are some of the things you have to do as an operator? Cause again, this seems more like a spaceship sometimes than a car.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the job for the driver has evolved a bit with technology. Um, when I started driving, we didn't have car to pit telemetry or live uh, communication. These days, through GPS, um, you know, and in, in a lot of different data acquisition on the car, the car is broadcasting in live time, all the vitals, everything that's happening with the engine, um, you know, gearbox, etc. So, Um, there's sometimes pit to car radio, uh, where they'll tell you in your ear, you've got earbuds, um, Hey, go to map five or G 12 position six. Um, you know, and, and so they'll ask you to make some changes on either the steering wheel or the dash, but yeah, there's probably 30 different buttons and five different, six different, sometimes 20 different settings per button. So it really is sort of like when you dip your head into a, a commercial aircraft and see the cockpit. That's um, all of of your buttons and, and how you do your job. But uh, we study photographs when you're new to a program or to a car. Um, a lot of times the engineers will send you a big packet of data and information that you study sort of pre-flight, if you will, before you go um, into a race weekend. And really, you have to understand uh, where each button is and be able to make those changes quickly, sometimes in the middle of a sequence of corners. So what do the things do? Like, what are you adjusting? Are you adjusting things in suspension? Are
0: you accelerating different ways? Like,
1: just like, what are the parameters and stuff? Mostly different sort of driving aids, um, ABS settings where we can ramp up or down how our anti-lock brake system works, Um, traction control settings where we can make the intervention of the traction control more or less sensitive, Um, different fuel mixture settings. So obviously the car and the driver always want the most fuel possible, but sometimes the engineers want to conserve how much fuel you're using. Um, So similar type um, ideas, maybe not as in-depth to what you have in your streetcar, but again, you're trying to maximize um, your speed on track, but also limit the amount of time that you're in the pits. So a lot of times uh, there's some very smart people back in the pit lane, um, who are are sort of conducting what you need to do with um, different switches. But high beam switch, overtake maps, um, fuel mixtures, ignitions, different um, fuel pumps. There's a lot of sort of overrides where if they see something they don't like, they can ask you to switch to a different pump on the fly, something of that nature.
0: And how is all this information being displayed to you? It sounds like the offsite engineers obviously are viewing a lot of things that you don't have to look at. But, like, do you have a heads up display? Is there just like a wash of information? Like, I'm just imagining there's just a bazillion different pieces of information that you could theoretically have in front of you.
1: Yeah, we have a digital display. Um, most of the cars these days, the, the actual display is on the steering wheel um, just to get it closer to the driver. But sometimes it's behind the steering wheel in sort of a setup like a traditional streetcar dash depending on how big the car is, prototypes are sort of bespoke made um, sports cars that look a little bit like a a spaceship or a Formula One car with a body on it versus a GT car, which has the similar dash line and um, displays of a street car. So, you know, basically you've got different pages that you can scroll through again, another button on your steering wheel usually, that will allow you to look into different um, displays. Not dissimilar to a streetcar these days, where you could look on your brake map page, or you could look on your lap time page. You see your, your lap time um, live. Sometimes most drivers will see a delta, where they'll um, actually display back. The car will tell you whether you're going better or worse than your last lap or your best lap. So yeah, it's it's a lot of integral information. And I sort of coach and preach to younger drivers that, it's important to know um, how to get where you need to get uh, with inside of all of the digital dash and, and displays. But realistically, that's just to share information back to the pits. Your job is out front through the steering, uh, through the steering wheel and dash line onto the track. And another thing we teach and, and really try to work on ourselves is looking as far ahead as possible really is the safest and fastest way uh, to race at, around a track. So if you're looking down at your instruments or buttons or or displays, um, your your eyes aren't where they should be. So it's it's really just checking on straightaways, but in the corners your eyes are up. It's funny when you told me that I,
0: I had like a flashback to my father <laughs> saying when I, he was teaching me to drive, look as far ahead as possible, look as far ahead as possible. And like I'm I'm wondering, I guess back in the back in the day there was a little bit, you know, more more people Teaching proper driving uh, than today. I don't even know <laughs> they teach driving today, but um, a lot of that just sounds like you know good prudent advice. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but in the Le Mans cars by Porsche, there sort of was this like boost system where you could like push and get a temporary acceleration boost. Um, and if that was the case, like how did you
1: strategize when to use that boost? Yeah, um, probably what you're be referring to is like the 919 Porsche prototype uh, was a combustion engine and an electric um yeah sort yeah. of hybrid system and you could discharge the hybrid system and get a boost of electricity um, to help you overtake or um, in the case that you were going for a big qualifying lap and you really wanted to dump the whole system of of the electric uh, batteries that had saved up so yeah the the strategy of when to use that is, oftentimes developed by the engineers for optimal performance and they run simulations. Simulation is a massive part of motorsport development performance wise these days. So they can run simulations and see what the absolute most efficient way to sort of discharge your, your electricity. But um, oftentimes the driver will need it um, on the fly for like, as you mentioned, overtaking, but all of this is just so fascinating in, in how automated, so much of it has become and to the point where it most of the time will auto boost the electricity and, and use it at those optimal points. Interesting. From, so it's sort yeah. of, ha-
0: it's sort of the AI hel- helps you. It reminds me like star Wars where the droid is like your, you know, your co-pilot and does little
1: things for you. Yeah. And let me tell you when the electricity hits, it is unreal. It's like being shot out of a cannon because it's just so linear and, and it just comes so quickly that, um, you know racing in a in a electric fuel hybrid car every time you get electricity you know for a driver it's it's the happy button
0: have you visited the gift store for watch lovers it's called the blog to watch store and we carry art apparel and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiast buy your wristwatches elsewhere and celebrate the watch collecting hobby with high quality original products at the blog to watch store Right now, the blog to watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at the Blog2Watch. Made from 100% premium cotton, our soft fitted t-shirts are stylish, fun, and models like our iconic diver dial even have a glow-in-the-dark face. The blog to watch store carries bespoke yet affordable products, which the blog to watch editorial team wanted for themselves as the first customers. Visit the website to see what is available right now, and we ship internationally with new products coming all the time. Check it out by logging on to store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. So I was just curious about that. Do you think that we are about to see the end of combustion engine racing and it just moves all over to electric? Or does combustion engine racing, for very practical reasons, have a long Uh, life ahead of it. Because, I mean, again, to some context is that I think in America, the racing industry got so popular because it really was the test ground for new technologies that would eventually make their way into commercial automobiles. Um, And people loved seeing, you know, their manufacturers and and, and new technology being developed and things like that. Then it became very separated from sort of like the experience you'd have in a commercial environment. Um, So today the electric car racing industry could have a lot of implications to, you know, commercially made
1: cars. Um, I, I think you sort of know what I'm talking about, right? Yep, absolutely. It's a very interesting conversation. Um, as an ambassador for Porsche in, in North America, I get to um, be in on some of these conversations, but other stuff is very confidential. Uh, it's, it's interesting times. Uh, we just recently rolled out the GT4 RS to the media um, here in Southern California. And, of course, that's a full combustion GT car, um, no hybrid or electricity running through that. But other products that we're pushing out, uh, the product before that I was working on was the Taycan GTS, which, of course, was fully electric, performance, four-door segment, um, and and just a ripping, awesome, fun, fast car. I. I think that the street to track and track to street transfer that you referenced is very very important especially in this sort of hybrid and electrification period and we're developing all electric race cars as as we speak um and there's no there's no secret there um you know with with some of the product that's recently rolled out like the Mission R uh, an all electric pilot of a race car from porsche um, so it's interesting times to be right on the fringe of it obviously we have a team in formula e which if you haven't seen formula e uh go to youtube uh and check it out because it's the, cool it's wild racing it's quiet it's, though it's so quiet it's quiet and some fans aren't ready for quiet racing um, the pastime of going racing is loud rumbling engines and i admit i'm a purist uh, i'm a kid who grew up on the southern california short tracks and um, hearing hearing a ripping flat six or a rumbling V8 is, is still what I want in an automotive experience. But I will say that hybrid is the most interesting to watch, of course, Formula One. And in 2023, the LMDH, which is a new prototype, a globalized prototype formula for sports car racing with a bunch of manufacturers who have already um, entered into developing their car. It's, it's an exciting time with with hybrid technology and all-electric, but of course, combustion engine is still uh, the favorite amongst the fans if, if you polled the whole uh, world, for sure.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. I always think about the other types of alternatives to fossil fuels, right? Because I think everyone agrees that at some point soon, we're going to have to stop relying on fossil fuels for as many things. Um, Absolutely. But it's not necessarily all electric, right? Like there are other ways. There's fuel cell technology. There's various types of alternative fuels that people are working on. I'm like, it's not so black and white as the world is fossil fuels or electric motors. There's other stuff in there. Are there other race series out there that like, I don't
1: know, race fuel cell cars? I have no idea. Yeah, I think alternative fuels is a great space and definitely um, some, some great concepts out there. Um, One of the things that, shifting back a little bit, I know uh, I'm kind of stuck on this hybrid side of things, but one of the parts that I love about motorsport and and the hybrid application is motorsport... Hybrids are great, by the way, great. (laughs) To make performance on the track, deceleration is such a huge part of making a fast lap. And so to create regen and to actually recharge um, with late hard braking where there's so much consumable in endurance racing between discs and pads and everything that you need in a, in a car to have the brakes perform and, and last for long miles, mileage, whether you're racing or driving on the street. I love that part of it. But back to your question, absolutely hydrogen, a natural gas. There's lots of, um, development, lots of projects going on. And I think it's a, a great development space. I mean, some people like to roll their eyes and, and ask, you know, how is racing cars green? And the reality of it is is that in, in a footprint, it's a very small amount of footprint of, of racing compared to the daily user of commuting in a car. So if we can develop and market interesting and new, efficient ways um, to make performance cars exciting, efficient, um, and reliable then we're doing something good. Um but yeah, it's definitely a debate that I don't find myself on either side of. I just <laughs> enjoy I enjoy listening to everybody's perspective. Oh, so there's a bunch there's of people strong... <laughs> out there that 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 are that take issue
0: with racing. And they say it's wasteful. I mean, what I would say to them is there's not going to be R&D otherwise. The R&D that would otherwise happen would make cars less expensive, less exciting, um maybe like more marketable but not necessarily better cars like all like nothing that like consumers really want whatever you have to say about racing it has forced literally forced this entire um area of innovation that has made consumers very happy as a result not just that but also made cars safer more efficient and things like that like racing has all these side effects. Um, Like you said, I mean, the teams that compete there, they pour money into it. No one's making money. None of these teams are making money doing it. They're pouring money
1: into it. Um, It is just all R&D, basically. Yeah, and I think um, you've hit it on the head is that when you squeeze very wise and intelligent engineers into a small box of performance and competition rules, and they want to win. Um, you learn fast, and it is accelerated uh, learning curves. Uh, Wolfgang Ulrich, who led Audi um, through decades of overall wins at Le and the most one of the most dominant runs, if not the most dominant run in Le Mans history with the Audi prototypes, he gave an interview once that I was watching, and it was really interesting. He said, "I can't otherwise justify motorsport." if it wasn't for the development that comes out of the motorsport side of the business. And realistically people are going to work as hard as they want to work inside the confines of their job description. But when you put them into motorsport and they're racers through and through, they go way over the call uh, of what their job description is. Merely just wanting to dominate, wanting to beat their rivals, wanting to maximize everything. And, and, as a car company, uh, all the Volkswagen group, Audi, Bugatti, Porsche, you name it, they Lamborghini, I mean, they're all in some aspect of competition. And I think it's, it's pushing the product to be not only quicker, but more efficient, more reliable. I think that's really the lineage of where Porsche has kind of cut their teeth from all the way back to the late 40s um, running in the mountains of Austria. So let's bring a parallel over to the watch
0: industry, which for a long period of time, especially in the 20th century, did the exact same thing. Uh, They were competing to to satisfy particular types of um, utilitarian purposes, like trying to make a watch go very deep underwater or perform in all these exotic environments. And they were competing with other brands and things like that. And today... You, you don't necessarily have that. And so you and I were talking, we were sort of lamenting how difficult it is to get a watch brand to build something new, um, which I think that they would do more readily if they thought that they were sort of winning something as a result. Today they're like, oh, will I sell more? Like imagine the car companies, you had to push them uh, to change things uh, just because. They would never change anything unless there exactly. was a competitive element to it. And and I get, I don't think enough consumers think about These core incentives at companies, like companies are lazy and want to do as little as possible to make money. Like we know this, and they (laughs) will only sink money into an R and D when they think that it will help them uh, maintain and make money. And the second you don't have that competitiveness, uh, everybody loses out. Only people that win are maybe shareholders, investors, but employees lose, customers lose. Everyone hates it, and so you know we talk, especially in capitalism, about competitiveness. I don't necessarily think enough people think about that and how that element affects their favorite industries. I mean, um, again, you know, we're talking about Chopard. Like, wouldn't it be cool if there was something that we're competing for? Maybe it was accuracy or, or, or size or durability because that gets
1: them to do stuff, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's two types of people uh, or maybe more than two, but arguably um, there are people who are intensely competitive. And there are people who really aren't by nature competitive. But I think that you can sort of come over to one side or the other based on your team, um, based on who you're surrounded by and and what the challenge is, whether it's inner uh, company challenges, sales challenges, or um, building something, designing something. Um, It's kind of the good old-fashioned soapbox derby where everybody brings their own um, piece that they've Built um, to town to race against one another. And so, yeah, I love the sort of um, build offs where you have different um, custom bespoke designers that are sort of entering into some type of competition. We see a lot of that in the custom car build world, um, custom motorcycles. And I assume it's in the watch world as well. And I think. Everything comes back to that um, creative crossing with design. Um, what a, an amazing um, two things! And then, if you put a business mind behind it, uh, you, you're hitting on on three things that uniquely, I, I would argue that a lot of people are strong in one of those three suits. But if you get all three going in the same direction, you have got a, a brand. There's that's one gonna instance be-
0: over the last in the modern era of watches where something like this has been kind of successful. Um, and it was an auction series. It still goes on called Only Watch, right? And and I, I love the concept of this. The original organizer said the reason it's called Only Watch is that every watch that's entered has to be one of a kind. Um, cool. And then they they loosen the rules a little bit so that that actually wasn't the case. But that was the original idea, and the, and that the auctions were all for charity. So people would be incentivized to spend a lot of money because it was going to charity and they were getting a -a one-of-a-kind thing that was made just for the auction. And brands did it. They actually did crazy stuff for it. But then over time... they started to do less and less. Like you could see the resistance. They started putting in first made of a series or a prototype. Uh, Richard, Mille. <laughs> they just you know they have all these ambassadors that wear these their watches. So they just took one of the watches that was worn by an ambassador like Nadal when he was playing tennis. Be like, oh yeah, this is one of his watches. Yeah, oh it's one of a kind. N- Nadal has you know dozens of Richard meals right, but it's they say it's one of a kind, and they sort of you know. I think, cheapened the whole concept of it. But that was really it. You know, what do you think? Give some advice, because you said the car world has so much of it. What can the watch world do to create an event that would incentivize
1: brands to actually make some new stuff? Well, I think, generally speaking, it might not have to be complete bespoke hardware, but even taking ambassadors or designers, internal or external, and as you've told me about, you know, some, some collaborations, I think that going outside the box and collabs for, for us at Luft, um, my company, we love to have fresh eyes come in and also just to tell a story um, to connect uh, somebody who's not from the general demographic of follower that, that the brand might always um, speak to. So those things are always super engaging, very fun, and and a great content piece as well. I do find also the kind of in-process design and development um the, the the bts of all of this is is super fun to see sort of coming to life so yeah I, I think that would be fun in in watches but i also think of when you talk about nadal i think about how cool it is um to look at watches that are previously owned by people that had an interesting travel or competition part of their usage of the watch because i don't know I, I guess i feel like these these watches, these race cars, these street cars—they they sort of tell a story. They have like a embedded DNA in them, and uh, it's a pretty cool way to um, buy a piece of history. So, in the future,
0: bid on Patrick Long's watches.
1: That's what that's what the point is. <laughs> wow. <Well, laughs> no, I I don't think I've ever let a watch go, but. Um, it's great working with Chopar. They've uh, given me some design influence in our watch. We release a watch with them in conjunction with Lufka Cult, which is an annual gathering that I mentioned. But, um, you know, Matthew and the team, uh, John baptiste they know that uh, prior to my sort of uh, tenor here with uh, Chopar that, you know, I've, I've won watches in lots of different races or had sponsorship from other companies. And uh, it's great to, to have those watches to either pass on or, or, again, reflect on stories. But yeah, it's it's cool to have um, those memories. Let's talk about this venture of yours um,
0: that I always feel like I'm going to screw up the name, uh, Luftgekult, which just means air-cooled in German. Um, this is uh, an event series around air-cooled Porsche Cars. Why these particular class of you know class of Porsches, and who is the demographic, and what goes on at these
1: events? Well, the the car, the why on the car is, I just uh, I was I was completely drawn to the classic car experience. When I joined the, the team at Porsche, we would have these marketing events and I had the opportunity to drive uh, some of the museum, uh, Porsche's museums, cars, race cars, street cars. And it just, it was the way it made me feel. I jumped into the car, the the engine, the way you drive the car, the way it smells, the way the windshield looks, it kind of teleports you into a different uh, era, oftentimes an era that was long before I was born driving you know, cars in the sixties, fifties, you name it, um, and and it just was enjoyable. It made me feel like a kid again um, when you first get behind the wheel and you have that feeling of independence. Um, you are looking out this windshield at whatever's coming towards you, and and classic cars do that for me. It's a very visceral uh, experience, and and again, it takes your your mind and it kind of it's an escape. So I started uh, with a nineteen eighty six nine eleven as as a a sort of a side investment. I was looking for the right car um, to just kind of take out on the weekends and, and hopefully place a little bit of money in a safe, enjoyable place. And when I started going to car shows around Southern California, I found that it was real early in the morning in a random parking lot, 6 a.m., and a bunch of car nuts talking about their cars. And I was never gonna get my wife or any of my non-car loving friends to come with me to these cars and coffees, if you will. I realized that there was a big hole in the market for what is now sort of any but given. You said classic Car Night, night, remember? Yeah, exactly. And and I just felt like it was missing music, it was missing um, that family atmosphere, it was missing architecture. So I started with a show um, at Deus Ex Machina there in, in Venice, California. Uh, corner of, of Lincoln and and Venice Boulevard. It's a, a very uh, art-driven community and a great piece of real estate. And I just put 40 Porsches in the parking lot. I hand-selected each car um, to tell a different story and really to cater to the non-car aficionado and to break down the walls and the stigmas. And um, obviously, Porsche and Southern California have a massive love affair, both in vintage, but also uh, in modern cars. And so, yeah, the it just went off. That was 2014. And we've just been riding a wave of, of trying to keep up with the demand. And and we move the event around each year. Uh, last year, we were in Indianapolis. Uh, this year, we're looking to be back in LA uh, toward the end of 2022. And uh, the last event we did here in Southern California was at the Universal Studios back lot. So it was pretty wild to have you know, six, 7,000 people gathering around hundreds of Porsches, and then the Universal Studios tram to be driving by with all of the tourists from Universal uh, checking this car show out. So That's cool. That's um, fun. Yeah, super fun.
0: Okay, so the event is kind of like the car appreciation event you wanted it to be. You got to start somewhere. You can't, you know, just include every single car. Um, now, this is going to be your your life's passion for the next foreseeable future? Is this sort of a fun thing you're doing right now? I guess the question is not only what this means to you, but the bigger question of, you know, what do you do after being uh, a professional uh, driver? You know, there's always this
1: question, once you retire, what what do you do? Yeah, I think Luft is um, one of my focuses for sure. I mean, it's a year-round business. Uh, there's five of us on the team. Uh, there's something new every quarter. We do a lot of collaborations. We have our own online store. Um, the direct-to-consumer online uh, retail side is something that I underestimated. Just how many uh, products come through our store or, or go out of our store um, on a daily basis is just a, a full-time job in itself. But also, event production is as many people who are listening that have been in event production. There's so many moving pieces to um, popping up an event with thousands Super of people. Intense. Yeah, so that's that's a great um, outlet for my intense energy, and and it's a great place. I guess if I really strip back on um, what my own startup and my own company really means to me is creating an environment where people who are smarter and more creative than I want to come to work and want to put their heads together and look forward to the Monday call every week uh, where we talk about what's going on this week. So um, that's just something I've always um, been driven to have. It, it's it's probably from my exposure uh, both to my father being a small business owner, but also to being um Embedded in race teams, where you have twenty people from all over the world, from different backgrounds and, and walks of life, and you all kind of link up and you go on this adventure. And I think there's a lot of parallel between event production and motorsport events. So um, I love that side of of the business. And and one of my focuses these days, I'm also a consultant for the CEO of Porsche Motorsport North America. So pretty busy working um, over there and uh, ambassadorship for the importer, which is in Atlanta, um, doing the PR. Events and releases of new product, and then I have a new automotive storage business that's uh, coming online pretty soon. Um, So yeah, just caught my hands in a lot of different things. I'm kind of one of those. Uh, messmaker idea guys uh, that relies on really strong people uh, to manage all of the different uh, things that we're involved with. But uh, it's fun. I, I just wish I was more engaged in social media so I could put <laughs> some of this stuff up because it's every day is a new adventure. It's a little frantic, but uh, with a young family, as you know, uh, traveling and, and raising uh, young kids, it's there's there's always something going on. I think it's really
0: important to dissect some of what you said because, when you are a champion, an athlete, someone that just sort of exists in this sort of high adrenaline environment all the time, your body and your mind get used to a certain thrill that when it all ends uh, can leave you in a weird spot. And what I've heard is this tale of someone that wants to not not let that go and not sort of go the path of, um, uh, of boredom, but but acknowledges that this is something you love and has found a sort of um a, a new step and a new way of doing that which i think is fantastic you and i have both seen a lot of people that had former glory not necessarily know how to transition there's no like handbook out there that says like you know here's how to be a former champion and how to you know stay excited every day like you have to figure it out, and not everyone does. And the the success that you have right now with all these ventures didn't come naturally. People weren't like, okay, sir, we want to like use your name for all these exciting
1: things. You just have to sign here, and we'll do all the hard work. Like That doesn't happen at all, right? No, exactly. I think that if you just start to throw your name or your company's name around uh, into anything that comes through the door, uh, people quickly r- realize that you're just sort of... Uh, selling out and and jumping uh, at things for the wrong reasons. But I do think that there are different types of people who want different levels of engagement within uh, whatever they're producing or involved in. And admittedly, when you talk about pro athletes, um, I think a lot of the stigmas are true and, and myself included. For a long time, uh, I had somebody who told me where to be at an event, any given moment. Um, I didn't have to think, I didn't have to look at a calendar. Um, I had people you know, preparing my helmets and preparing my race car. And you you start to lose a little bit of the reality um, of, of being accountable, um, of, of starting something and finishing it, um, and so you get spoiled. And sometimes athletics uh, bring out the best of you, and sometimes they can bring out the worst of you at a pro level, so I think quickly uh, when I, I started this this car show um, and, and then rolled it into more of a company that I found a lot of parallels in the buildup to an event um, and really having your hand in a lot of key decisions. And then that event goes off at a certain day, at a certain time, whether you're ready or not. It's not like you can roll uh, the deadline over another week because you didn't get your stuff done. And I think that's kind of a parallel in racing. Come hell or high water it's going on Sunday morning, the race is starting, whether your car's ready, whether you showed up, whether you had COVID or not, like the, the race is happening, no one's going to wait for you. So it it, it is a great um, school of thought. And also just being surrounded by some of the most talented people that are, are being selected as team managers, as engineers, as creative directors, um, even a social media manager. I mean, you, you really get to work alongside of a great team of people who have been selected. There's so many people who want to live that traveling circus life in pro sports. And if you've had the chance to be involved as, as yourself, um, you understand that there's a lot of competition to get into those different roles. So I loved being centered uh, around so many people and and learning and watching them work and now trying to build up my own team and understanding that there's just not enough ground to cover or there's too much ground to cover, excuse me, um, doing things the way you want to do them, when you want to do them, and for yourself. If you want to be scalable, you have to be able to uh, share that trust, share that vision, uh, know how to communicate with your team, uh, know when when to console uh, and, and when to celebrate. And, and I love that challenge, and I love working inside of teams. And some of my mentors and advisors, you know, one of the, one of the one-liners that sticks out to me is, "Business isn't hard, people are hard." So really understanding how to navigate different personalities and different backgrounds and and try to get everybody pulling in the same direction. It's cliche and, and sort of low-hanging fruit, but it really, to me, is the essence of success. So it sounds like, and maybe it was before, but especially
0: with uh, Luftgekult, it kind of put you in this entrepreneurial position where you had to sort of like mature up, toughen up, learn a lot of schools very, skills very, very, very quickly, um, in order to compete with this new thing that you were doing, and because you're competitive, you're like, bring it on. But a lot of people never have an opportunity to be in that entrepreneurial position, and it's it's so tough because I agree with you. Life doesn't give you deadlines. If you don't make your own initiative and just make things happen. Uh, the world wants to stand still, right? <laughs> like it doesn't want to move. You have to make those waves yourself. And a lot of people who, even if they were absolute masters in their field, really relied on the structure of that field
1: to to thrive, right? Yeah, absolutely, and 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 relied on um, leaders and people who take risks to build teams and to create startups, um, and and giving them. Um, the tasks and the deadlines and really that top level management. And I think that when that becomes your job and you've got people looking at you uh, and they want to go, don't get me wrong. A lot of my team, um, oftentimes they're they're thrusting forward and I'm the one pull, pulling the brakes as the head of brand and wanting to make those decisions. But you just learn um, through that exposure uh, what what it takes. And um, being on the opposite end of it for me was a real wide eye opener, I think, for more listeners, they probably understand that aspect of team and deadlines, um, building up communication, et cetera. But um, for independent sport athletes where it's really centered around you, uh, you're the last one to show up on a race weekend. You're the first one to leave at the end, um, to be on the other side of it and to be an event promoter. Um, just the liability of having $50 million worth of cars uh, on, under my LLC um, everything in between. It's its a really interesting to just see the other side. And I guess when it came to the end and making the decision to step out of um, full-time pro sports at the end of 2021, I had been thinking about this for a long, a, a long time. And it's never easy. It really still um, is something I'm processing now, you know, four or five months into sort of living the independent life. Um, you have to kind of step off that ledge and, and just say, I'm going to make it work. It never feels completely baked. It never feels perfect. But, um, yourself as an entrepreneur, as somebody who runs a brand, you know, that, um, the job never stops. There's never a clock in and a clock out. It's always on your mind. There's always little things that pop up, different time zones, different little headaches. So yeah, it's, it's a different type of, of love. It's a different type of, of living, but you know, it's, it's amazing. It's in its own right. It's kind of like raising kids. Uh, it's not for everybody, but, um, there's never a dull moment. You just have to kind of take each day at a time. You know what
0: I'm hearing? We're we're basically out of time. I think we need to do more of these conversations. What I'm hearing is your entire life has turned into 24 hours of Le Mans.
1: <laughs> well, in some ways, yeah, I would, right. I would say <laughs> always
0: alert. Every time you rest, you realize you got to get up and perform again. Um, it's but that's the way it is. Like I, I think that we'll be maybe in our like mid 60s, and then we'll be like, okay, we can relax a little bit right now. But I think we have like we have about two decades of an endurance race to 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 to, to proceed on. And I'm actually kind of excited by that because I think that the world with people like us um, is is a very open place because we're in a transitional period right now. Tomorrow is going to be very different. Traditional opportunities aren't necessarily going to be there. Um, we have to build our own little domains. Um, and, and you and I have done that in, in, in different ways. Um, but that is, you know, that's what it is. I mean, uh, does, does that excite you or scare you that you have about two decades of, of endurance racing?
1: Ah, it's, it's exciting. I I used to hear those cliche um, pieces of advice. It's like, chase your dreams and live every day like it's your last. <laughs> and I was like, yada, yada, yada. But actually, as I process it a little deeper and, and speak to more people and read about it more, uh, I think you nailed it. Um, we're evolving, right? Like the world is evolving, and we're evolving as people. And it's never too late. And I think uh, right now, kind of my internal dialogue is do more uh, less thinking and more acting and it ain't going to always be perfect. It isn't always going to be perfect. But um, it's better to fall down than not ever try. So it's, it's fun right now. I think it's uh, definitely an interesting time as we're sort of coming out of a, an interesting couple of years and realizing that maybe everything isn't the way we thought it was going to be uh, inside of lockdown and working from home, et cetera. So, yeah, it's definitely I look forward to these next couple of years and, and seeing how we all kind of slot into our next step here in these next couple of years
0: last question when is the next Luftka uh, get cooled and where is it going to be?
1: Well we're a little cryptic with some of our information uh, we like to keep uh, people on their toes and, and oh. it, it's it's one of those things where it sells out uh, before the event so right now um, we're sort of hinting out at Q3 um, in Southern California. Uh, That's the rumor I hear. But um, yeah, we we basically tell people to uh, go to our website, um, sign up to the mailing list. Uh, That's where we drop our information for our next shows and collaborations first. And uh, yeah, it's it's fun. It's fun to use cars as architecture and art and not to think about it as just rows of cars um, that you're looking at. It's really more about a a fun afternoon out and cars are the backdrop. So hope to uh, see some people out there that haven't been before.
0: Well, hopefully I will, uh, be granted entrance, uh, since it's in my own backyard when it comes about. And, um, it sounds very, very exciting. Everyone, uh, should check out your website, which is patricklong.com. Very simple. And there's links to uh, everything about you as well as the, uh, Luftgekult, um, page. Uh,
1: Patrick, thank you so much for, uh, being on this episode of the Superlative Podcast. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. Uh, it was, it was a blast driving with you and, uh, Great to be on the show. We'll see you down the road and for sure uh, we'll have your name on the list at Looft.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at a blogtowatch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit a blogtowatch.com.